So John 12, that's where we're going to be. Uh, I'm going to take a drink of water quick here and try to get through this. Um, okay, so today is part two of a short series series that we're doing um, called Good News. And, and what we're doing leading up to Easter and then a couple weeks after Easter is looking at the components of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that, and, and what that entails and what that looks like. So last week, uh, Nathan Duke, who's with us as a church planting resident, he talked us through the perfect life of Jesus and what that means and what it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God and this perfect uh, person who, who is able to stand in our place. And then this week, we're going to look at the death of Christ and how Christ substitutes in our place as he dies on the cross. Next week, fittingly, we'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus, right? It's Easter Sunday. You should do that. Um, So we'll definitely talk through that. And then we'll do a couple more weeks after that to wrap this up. Um, But I thought for today, I would take us to John 12, um, partly because it's Palm Sunday. And John 12 is where we see Palm Sunday in that text. So We're going to go there and look at what that means. But within John 12, Jesus gives us a very clear explanation of what his death will entail for us. It's like right on the the heels of him coming into Jerusalem for the final time to prepare for this day on Friday. So we're going to look at this, this narrative, this story as we go through it and and hopefully um, we'll, we'll come across just understanding a little more of what the gospel is and how it impacts us. So if you want to jump, we're, gonna, we're not going to look at every verse in this chapter. We, we can't do that. We don't have the time. But we'll, we'll kind of camp here generally in a, in a few sections. So the first section we're going to look at is starting in verse 12. It says, the next day, the next day being the, the day after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So he does this crazy, amazing miracle in the prior section um, and just does something that no one else has ever been able to do. He raises a man who had been dead for days back to life. So that obviously makes him kind of a popular figure, right? So the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the feast being the Passover, This would have been a time of the the Jewish calendar where as the highest of the holy days in the Jewish calendar, there would have been pilgrims from all over Israel coming into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to bring their sacrificial animals, to go through these rituals for forgiveness of sin. And some estimate that there were 100,000 extra people in Jerusalem during these, these days. Large crowd had come to the feast, and they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it had been written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right, so this is the, a familiar scene to those of us who have been in the church for a while, I think. And it's this, this day that we celebrate 
on this Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, it's Palm Sunday. It's the day we commemorate this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And Jesus is riding into the city on a donkey, which might sound kind of weird to us, like not really a kingly ride, you know. We, we think maybe he'd ride a lion or something. But he rides this donkey, um, and a donkey was a symbol of peace in that culture. And so he was signifying he's coming in as not as a conquering king, but as a, as a peaceful king. Um, but he's riding in, and they, they, the people, the crowds, are laying down palm branches. And other texts tell us uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us they're laying down their coats as well on the, on the road as he's riding in. And that was sort of the, the first century equivalent of rolling out the red carpet for somebody. It's big, this big thing like, hey, this guy is vital and important. And then they start to shout as he comes in. And they're saying, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. That's what Hosanna means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so we're, we're here at this, this beginning of Jesus' Passion Week, the beginning of this final week that he's entering into Jerusalem to bring about our salvation through his death and resurrection. And he enters in in this triumphant kind of way, this very excited, the crowds are going crazy for him. The Pharisees, we know from other passages of this story, are mad about this. Um, and actually, I think John mentions that in the next section, which we'll, we won't look at specifically. Um, but the, the Pharisees are pretty upset about this because they understand what Jesus is really saying about himself and, and what he's going to do. But the crowds of people really don't get it completely. They, it's, it's ironic, actually. This passage is an ironic passage because everything they say is true. Everything they say is true of what Jesus is going to do for them. He is going to save them. He is blessed, and he does come in the name of the Lord. He, he is the king of Israel. These are all true things. But their expectations were not right because they were expecting Jesus to be the king that would overthrow the Romans, give the people their, their liberation and freedom from a political and military enemy. The Romans, many years before this, about 100 and, or 200 years before this event, had come into Israel, like they did every, everywhere virtually in, in the known world at that time, conquered it militarily and set it up as one of their provinces. And so this, of course, led to uh, a ton of resentment and hatred for the Romans. And the people of Israel are expectant that Jesus will triumph over them. But what they're missing is that Jesus is not coming into Jerusalem ultimately in triumph at this moment. We, we actually see how Jesus perceives this whole thing. If you look down at verse 27, we're skipping a little bit here, I know, but look down at verse 27. Here's where Jesus begins. Um, he, he speaks a little bit uh, in the prior section, but here's where he starts to talk to the crowds. And here's what he says. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So notice how the, the irony that John is pointing out here. The people are celebrating triumph. Jesus is reflecting on trouble. You see that? The, triumph, the triumphal entry is not truly triumphant at this moment in time. The, these, the people in Israel were kind of jumping the gun a little bit on this. It's, it wasn't the time to celebrate this moment. Jesus is troubled in his soul. Why is he troubled? He's troubled because he knows why he's entering into the city. He knows that in a matter of four or five days, it's all going to go upside down. He's, he's going to be in a garden, having been betrayed by one of his closest friends, sweating drops of blood as he cries out to the Father for help, then arrested in the middle of the night, brought to the high priest, put under some circus of a trial, convicted of something that isn't a crime, but was just true, that he's claiming to be God, because he is God. He's brought before the Gentile Pontius Pilate, who doesn't have enough of a spine to say, I'm not going to crucify an innocent man, has him scourged, meaning his back was torn to shreds by the Roman instrument of the cat nine tails. He is humiliated, beaten, insulted, ridiculed, stripped down to nothing, forced to carry his cross, nailed to that cross, lifted up and suffocates over the matter of six hours. That's what he sees down the road. You'd be troubled too. He's troubled in his soul but notice that that troubled soul does not turn away from the, from the task. Look at what he says. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus is resolute knowing that sin and death will only be defeated once and for all as he goes to the cross. So he's not asking for God to save him from the hour. He knows this was the purpose of his coming into the world. He knows that this is what he must do and he sets his face towards it. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus went to the cross for you and for me with resolute determination even though he's troubled in his soul th throughout. The God who created the universe was mocked by his creatures and killed by them in order to save them. 
The Bible tells us in Isaiah that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But he was, he was a troubled savior. Even in the wake of a triumphant entry, Jesus is troubled, but he's troubled for you and for me. For our sake. So that we would be right with him and forgiven. So from this, then God the Father speaks from heaven affirming to Jesus that his name has been glorified and will be glorified again. And, and God speaks from the, the, the sky in that regard and the people who are there, most of them don't even recognize it. They're like, oh, it just thundered. Or maybe there was some words there, maybe an angel was talking to him. They're blind to the realities of what's really happening. But what Jesus goes next is vital. In verse 27, uh, excuse me, 31 uh, through 36, Jesus lays out what his death will accomplish for us. And he's going to give us three things, at least three things, probably more, but we're going to pull out three things here as we talk about the good news of the gospel, as we talk about why the death of Christ is good news, we we need to see that Christ's death accomplished something vital and good for us. All right, so let's look at it. Look at verse 31. Now, Jesus is still speaking here. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Okay, let's, we'll stop there for a moment. Jesus says to the people that had lined the streets, put down their palm fronds, celebrated his entrance, believing this is a victorious moment, and Jesus sort of changes the whole thing and says, no, I'm, I'm not celebrating here, I'm troubled, but I know God will get the glory through what I do. And then he says, the first thing he points out about his death is that the ruler of this world will be cast out. I I imagine that the people that heard this for the first time were probably thinking of the emperor in Rome because in their world, he ruled the world. He, He was functionally the one that owned everything. But we know Jesus is not speaking here of an earthly ruler. He's talking about the ruler of the world as in the devil. But notice what he says. He says that the ruler of the world will now be cast out. What does that mean? Well, what it means functionally is this, that through the cross, we have been given ultimate victory over Satan and sin and death. Satan is no real threat to us anymore. I, I think we, some of us need to shift our theology on this because it's easy for us to think of a, a dualism in this world as if God is 
the, the good and Satan's the bad, but they're fairly equal in force. That's not how the Bible presents any of it. The devil has no real power. Not anymore. Not with the cross of Christ. The, the cross has disarmed him. Yes, the Bible tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But then it tells us to resist him and he will flee from you. So, so what we can take from this is this, that he's, he may be a lion, but he's a toothless, clawless lion. He's a joke. He, he's been made a mockery for us. Luther said it this way, that the best way to drive out Satan, if he won't yield to the text of Scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. Luther just would make fun of him because he can't handle that. But he has no true power. Let me show you where the Bible teaches us this besides right here. There's two places, 2 Corinthians 2.14 and Colossians 2.15. Let's look at 2 Corinthians first. Um, I think this is, this is an important text and here's what it says. Verse 14, Paul's writing and he says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. Now the key in this is, that Paul talks about this triumphal procession. What was that? Well, that was a, a common thing in the, in the times that, that Paul lived in. It was when the Romans would conquer a nation. They would bring the king, if he survived the battle, and they'd bring the top generals, if they, whoever survived, the, the top people that survived the battle, they would bring them alive back to Rome and they would have a parade where they were chained up, dragged through the streets, humiliated, mocked, ridiculed. And basically the idea is that the Romans could not be destroyed. So here, here we're going to mock our enemies. But Paul applies this to the work of Christ. Who's he talking about? He's talking about bringing and dragging Satan and his followers through the streets in triumph before us. And we're a part of this. And we get to mock the work of the devil. Why? Not because we're anything, but because Christ has cast him out through the cross. He's given us victory over him. Even more clearly, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Is it up there? I can't turn to it. Okay. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. The rulers and authorities are Satan and his demons. This is what the Bible teaches us. They've been triumphed over, and they've been brought to open shame. This is so crucial. 
that the cross brings us victory, not only over Satan himself, but over the, the tools that he wields, which is sin and death. It's easy to think of Christ's death and see it as a win for Satan if we don't see the resurrection. The resurrection is what brings this victory ultimately to bear. So, so Charles Spurgeon said on this, he said, faith, faith in Christ regards the cross not as an emblem of shame, but as a token of glory. It tells us that the cross was Jesus Christ's field of triumph. There he fought and there he conquered too. That's such good news. We do not need to fear the work of the devil. Can he bother us? Yes. Can he tempt us? Yes. But we're not forced to succumb. He can be a nuisance, and that's about all he is. He's an obnoxious part of this, but he has no real power. Secondly, go back to John 12. Look at verse 32. Jesus goes on to say, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So we'll get to the answer to that question next, but let's look back at what he says. When I am lifted up from the earth, that's a reference to the cross of Christ, lifting him above the ground. We know that that's what he's talking about because verse 33 says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And we know that they caught on to this, the people listening to him, because they asked, wait a minute, the Christ isn't supposed to die. So how does this work, right? Okay, but, but what does Jesus say will happen when he is lifted up? He says, I will draw all people to myself. Now, when he says all people, does he mean literally every single person who has ever existed? No. We know that that's not the meaning of all here. Okay, it's clear from context. It's clear from the rest of scripture. What he is saying is that he is drawing all kinds of, every kind of person to himself. He draws people from all nations, all ethnicities, all languages, all tribes. He's not just dying for the, to, for the Israelites, though he is dying for them too. He's also dying for the Gentiles. But on a more broad level than that, here's how I look at this statement. I think Jesus is saying that he is drawing every kind of sinner to himself. Every kind of person, every kind of sinner, that is such good news. Because there's nothing that you or I could do or have done or failed to do that will disqualify us from finding grace at the cross of Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of sinner you are. Let's rattle off some options. Ready? We we may be hypocritical sinners. We may be sexual sinners. 
We may be drunken sinners. We may be gossiping sinners. I see that hand back there. Brother, that's great. We're, we're sinners of all shapes, all kinds, some religiously, some irreligiously. But there's no sinner in this room or in this world that Christ will not give grace to if they draw to him. Jesus is lifted up from the cross like a beacon of grace. It's a giant sign. It says, come here and find grace and help. It's like a lighthouse shining in the storm, a light on a city that a weary traveler sees and finds safety. Jesus is for us that hope and help. Okay. Didn't mean to cry, sorry. Uh, I make Chris uncomfortable. No, I don't make Chris uncomfortable. (laughs) He loves it. He's going to talk about this all week with me. It's going to be terrible. Okay. All right, here we go. Verse 35. I'm going to call in sick tomorrow so I don't have to talk to Chris about this. (laughs) All right. Let's look one more time. That's how I, that's how I deal with my, my issues. I just make jokes. All right. It's a coping mechanism. Verse 35. They ask, so they ask, who, who, the, the Christ isn't supposed to die. What's happening here? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So Jesus tells us that his death on the cross will bring us victory and bring us grace. But I think what he's getting at with this analogy of light that he goes to is that it also gives us true and new life. See, we, we think of light, I think this analogy lands a little differently for us than for the people he spoke to and originally. They didn't have light switches that they could just turn on and go, boom, here's light. Light was absolutely vital for life and safety and security. It was vital for all the things that they, that they didn't have because they didn't have electricity or the, no, even the concept. But Jesus is saying that I am the light and I'm with you for a while. Walk in this light so the darkness doesn't overtake you. Jesus is saying that the light he gives is what gives us a new life, a a new lease on life and brings us into the purity and transparency of the gospel. The, The light of Christ kills our sin and makes us clean. Look at 1 John 1, 5 to 10. Same author who's recording Jesus' words here writes a letter, wrote a few letters actually um, in the New Testament. But in 1 John 1, verse 5, it says this, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his words are not in us. Through the cross, light is given truly and fully. And because of the cross, we get to live a whole new kind of life. A life that entails forgiveness from God and full fellowship with one another. It doesn't, doesn't get any better than that. The cross actually deals with both things that, are, that, that all of us long for, to be reconciled to the God who made us and to be in fellowship with the people around us. What more are we looking for? In the cross, God gives us both of those things because he's in, he is the light. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, meaning we believe and trust in him, we will have that fellowship and that forgiveness that we long for. So how do we get in on this? Go back to John 12. He doesn't leave it ambiguous. He doesn't leave it up in the air. He tells us, verse 44 through 50, Jesus cried out, and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. So whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus is making this clear point. He's saying that if you believe in me, you will not remain in darkness. And if you receive my words, you will not be judged, you will be saved. That's all it is. We come to Christ through the cross to receive victory over sin, Satan, and death. We come to Christ to be received in grace we come to, come to the cross to get new life, but we come to the cross by belief, by trust in Jesus. That's what we do. If you've never done that, today's your day. It is. You can do it today. If you've done this, be reinforced in it. We don't just enter in one time and go, okay, cool, I'm, I can just do what I want now. No, it's an ongoing reminder of our hearts every single moment that Jesus has done these things for us and we live in it actively. So let's, go, let's come to him. 
Let's respond to him. Let's believe in him. We'll do that. And if you need help with that, I would love to talk with you. Pastor Chris would love to talk to you. Any of our elders would love to, or the person who invited you would love to talk to you about that. So uh, take that opportunity if, it's, if that's what you need. But in the meantime, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Um, Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus into this world from your very side, from your very essence. The God who created all things became a man, lived a perfect life, and then went to the cross in the place of sinners to bring us to life, to true life. I pray, God, that you would help us to know that, rest in that, trust in that. And God, I pray that you would meet us even now through your spirit, speaking and guiding, sealing us with what we need to hear, helping us to forget the things we don't need. And we pray that you would draw us to Jesus, that we would look to the cross as our beacon of hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.